You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. The Literature Corner. It is The Literature Corner. We're going to be talking about Becoming Him, a trans memoir of triumph written by Landa Mabenge. Last week, Karaba Holeng calls me. I don't like answering my phone call because I'm a millennial. But when Karaba calls you, you do answer because it's Karaba Holeng. <laughs> and um, I answered. And she affirmed the importance of this book. Every single book that Melinda Ferguson publishes, Melinda rightly, by definition, as the author of, of the publisher of the books, thinks is an amazeballs book. So someone's like, oh, Melinda, I don't want to read it. Also, Melinda does like very Memoirs sad stories, like heartbreak. Yeah, uh, I've cried enough. I've cried three times uh, this year reading her books. But when Karaba says, no, dude, this is a book that not only must you do it, here is an entire outline for how you and I need to have this discussion on radio. Um, I said, yes, let's do it. I, I must have sounded unenthused, but secretly I thought I love the creativity and the brains of this woman on the other end of the phone. So here we are, and it is Karaba and myself. We're going to review this book, and we're also in conversation with Landa. So over to you, because this is your idea, and thank you for making me read this book. I cried a lot yesterday. Thank you, Eusebius, and uh, yeah, those Welcome. tears. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to be here. And to be part of, you know, giving life to the stories that people sit down and write and the bravery, especially when you're going to talk about such an important issue. I mean, this isn't just a book uh, about, you know, it's not just a trans memoir. It's also about, you know, parental cruelty towards their kids. It's not even obvious to me that the trans bit is the most important, although it must have been an interesting thing to put in the subtitle. We're going to come back to that later Mm -hmm. and discuss whether that was tactically good from a marketing point of view. That's an interesting yeah. point. That's an interesting point. Because, you know, the, the plight of children is, is, is something that, you know, we, we live in a violent society and we know what happens to kids, you know. And my my concern and what I often think about is that this doesn't happen in vacuums or in spaces where there are not other parents or other adults around. So there's almost a certain level of complicity when parents are violent towards their kids because it's like this is family business. This is for this family. Uh, you and I were talking off air about um, you know the the incident where Landa's older brother had his jaw broken by his dad, and the doctor you know didn't even ask questions. Who's an uncle? Who's an uncle? Didn't even ask questions. And I mean, I can you know he, he gives so many examples of how. Well, just to backtrack, to give people a background mm. of of Landa's life, yes, is that uh, Landa was uh, was raised by his ma. He calls him her ma and his grandparents, right? In um, Mtata. In Mtata, I, I wanted to say in Mambetana uh, specifically, because yeah. my mom was also she she her people are from that area. She was just like, you, you have to say it properly, say it properly, because my cousin is like almost non-existent. But anyway, um, this angry woman has been show up out of the blue. And now the family secret comes out that his ma is actually his aunt. And when his mother gave birth to him, the very next day, she gave him to his sister and said, I don't want to see this child. And then she rocks up and, you know, these family secrets have been kept. And he's basically just thrown into a pit of wolves that's supposed to be his family and treated like a slave, you know, being, being starved. I mean, imagine being starved by your own parents. You know, so him and his older brother and then, uh, you know, his mom and dad had two younger children and those ones were treated really, really special. And and these kinds of things happen in families. You know, I've heard of so many cases, for example, where uh, a, a mom would have, 
a child, let's say, out of wedlock and then get married and have other children. And that firstborn child is almost treated like the outsider, you know, and made to do stuff that the other kids, the precious babies, don't get to do. So Landa lived through this, this, this hectic experience, not just being taken away from the bosom of the family that loved him and, and you know, let him be who he was. To um, and, and back then, I mean, he was a girl. He, he, he was biologically, because, you know, there's, there's the biological... There's he was assigned the gender of, of being... Yes. Of being a girl, yeah. Yes, exactly. And then he went through, uh, you know, life, uh, going going through high school, uh, end of primary school and high school in PE. And what he did that really, really touched me. And it just shows that even as young as he was, he had hope. He wrote down how many days it would take until he escaped. And it was over 2,000 days. Imagine counting down. You're imprisoned by your own family. What came up for you? That was very poignant for me because I want to share with you what came up for me. And maybe it's partly because I was re- re- reading a manuscript of a book that's coming out soon that that reminded me of, of this other reference of, a, of the use of a calendar and, and imprisonment. What came up for me was when I was in an abusive relationship and I was plotting how and when at at one point I was going to get out. And I literally did sort of, you know, mark it off, but in my head. But I had that game plan. And I think that's the thing that gives you hope and a reason to stay alive. Just one more day, just just get through the hell that's coming today. And you don't know what kind of hell it's going to be. And he said that, like, you know, by by the age of 11, he was ready to die. But there was this thing in him, this, I don't know whether to call it resilience or hope, but you're a strong man. Was the keeping of a calendar by Maweni in prison when you are in solitary confinement. And one of the ways she says to keep yourself from going insane is to understand what day, what the date is. And so she made sure that she kept a calendar. And I thought to myself, I almost swore an air now. Shh. It's amazing. You hear this little boy recalling the horror of counting down on the calendar how many more days before I can leave and that's my over five prison, years. right? So it's a kind of psychological prison in PE that he's living in. And in my head, I had this image of Maweni who makes sure that she also keeps a calendar also to try and fight against the psychological trauma of actual imprisonment. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is a story that it's really important to to have it to get it out there because I I, I suspect because of the levels of trauma that we live in in South Africa and how broken our families are, that a lot of people will be able to share Absolutely. traumatic experiences Absolutely. of their childhood. And the thing is, they carry on into the kind of social ills that adults have. Mm. You know, when you talk about substance abuse, when you talk about how people are not able to have healthy relationships, it all comes Which it happens to him later and later in his life. Yes, exactly. Shall we say, how's it to him? He's in the Cape Talk. Hello, field. Landa. Hi, how are you? I am fine. We're How are good. you doing? Thank you, Landa. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Book. Yes, congratulations. Absolutely. Now, Landa, I'd like to find out um, how, you know, did you only use recall when writing about your early childhood in Ngambedlana? Or did you have other prompts for your memory? You know, were there things or pieces or items that would mm. remind you of those early days? So most of it, yes. But for, for, for a chunk of it, I also relied on my uncle JS that I referred to in the book. Right. And my aunt PP, but for an example, the 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 first incident uh, with the mother that stuck with me. It stayed with me. In fact, um, even when Uncle Jace read the book, he was he called me and he's like, "You've narrated it exactly as it happened." Because I think for me as a child, that was a, a very hectic impression, 
and not knowing what's going on. So that particular one stuck with me. Um, but yeah, in, in some instances, I had to like pick up the phone, call my uncle, pick up the phone, call my aunt and just say, just fill in these gaps for me. What was happening here? Like, for an example, where did my grandmother go to school? Um, you know, th- those types of things. But most of it, yes, I wrote it from from memory. What was it like crafting this? Because reading this was very, very difficult. Um, I found myself crying throughout, as you recall, the incredible trauma that you'd been subjected to mm. and your brother as well in particular. And Karabo and I will debate with you a little bit later. It's interesting uh, the the freedom we have to interpret books through our own experiences. Yeah. For me, for example, the heart of this memoir is not that it is a trans memoir. It is a memoir of an all-too-typical, broken, traumatic South African childhood. What was it like to, to write trauma? Did you re-traumatize yourself? What were the tools you used to make sure that you can have authorial control in the process of writing, but without under-describing the pain? So, firstly, thank you. Thank you for reading my book. I really appreciate it. Um, I think going back into this book, I've been wanting to write for a while, and... Um, it was meeting and getting to know Mel that actually got me to that point where, you know what, you need to sit down and actually start writing. And during the, the writing and even before, my biggest fear was going back into this darkness and staying there. Because I couldn't trust yes. myself that I would be able to come out again. It, it, it would require too much and I didn't know if I would have that strength. Mm-hmm. But to get me through it, I think I, I, I relied a lot on why it is that I've always wanted to tell my story, number one. Number two, the amazing support from Mel. I mean, she would check up on me almost daily to make sure I'm writing. How are you feeling? Even after workshops at her home, she would follow up and say, you were great today. Keep going, keep writing, and remember why it is that you're telling the story. And also just putting my hand up and saying, you know what, I'm not coping. I mean, there were days I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to write. I didn't feel like... Um, I wanted to continue, you know, but I put up my hand and say, you know what, maybe I need to chat to someone. And uh, that's where my therapist, Birgit, who's, who's a very good friend now, I would just chat to her uh, from time to time just to keep myself in check, you know, um, to try and find ways and activities to fill my day and not to focus too much on having to relive the trauma that I'd worked so hard to sort of overcome. Hmm. And Birgit is an amazing human being. Oh, she's I mean, amazing. To, 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 she to is. Is that a real name, by the way? Because I was five seconds away from checking the UWC website. Yeah, it's a real oh, name. She sounds amazing. <laughs> it's a real name. She's now at Stellenbosch <laughs> University, so she's okay. a senior director at the Department of Student Affairs. That is so important because also when, you know, when people come of age and, you know, writing those experiences of university, they, they, there's so much that goes on. You start to, you're starting to formulate your ideas about who you want to be in the world. Mm. Uh, you start to, you know, solidify uh, your ideas about what kind of world you live in, mm. you know, whether it's fair, unfair. And then you're also experimenting, you know, you're experimenting, uh, you know, with sex, with exactly. drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> and life, the you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is, I mean, yeah, there's just so many lay- layers to this. I mean, let's explore a couple of them. Okay. One thing that was unresolved for me, and I assume that it was because you are being true to the reality of how unresolved these traumas are in our families, Landa, mm. is, and you explored this with Ma and with your grandmother and with your grandfather, there isn't 
a perfect mathematical solution by the end of the book, nor in life, to understand the madness of your parents and the abuse that you and your siblings had suffered at their hands. Mm. That is an enormous puzzle because I kept thinking to myself, are they getting all this nonsense <laughs> from, from the Seventh-day Adventist community they're yeah. part of? The, 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 the illness they die from, I made assumptions what it was. Is it self-hate? What's going on mm. here? And it must be horrible as a child trying to make sense of deprivation. Yeah, look, uh, I mean, my brother and I used to actually have meetings in the still of the night. I mean, I think the first time he woke me up, it, it was uh, early days into the new home. And I was crying myself to sleep. I couldn't cope. I had anxiety, you know, and he wakes me up gently and he says, you need to try and hang on. Things have changed now. And, you know, um, and in things changing, they change drastically overnight. Now we, we used to sit sometimes and ask, do we really belong to these people? But now my brother's the spitting image of the father and I'm the spitting image of the mother. So then we decide maybe you, Landa, are not, but I definitely am. You know, because sure. I look exactly like the father. And so we would we would have these conversations and these theories. We would try and figure out because, I mean, the mother had been married before, but now we are not products of that first marriage. So it doesn't make sense. Right. Because in this home, we're staying together with as four kids of the same mother and father. Yeah. And so you don't fit, fit what, don't what fit. was saying, that profile of the outside child. Yes, we don't fit. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, uh, you, you be is with with the mother, you never knew but i preferred her to some degree because with her even though you never knew you you knew exactly that there would never be any affection there would never be any attempt at um that bond or building a bond do you get what i'm saying because I she do, could and I, want easily, you to, I want you to describe that after this news break with orally so the listeners can get a sense of what the three of us are talking about okay cool that weird yeah. pendulum swing in your dad where he can go from your ally to try and get you a matric two-piece suit that you want yeah. to next thing booting your brother. Yeah. At least your mom was consistent in her That's cruelty, but thing. I want you to describe that. The Literature Corner. We're talking about Becoming Him, a trans memoir of triumph uh, written by Landa Mabenge and Karabo uh, Holeng is with me in the studio and we have both read this book. We both think that you should go and buy it, read it. It is not just about the experiences of a trans man in terms of transitioning. In fact, the majority of the book really is about, as Karabo has rightly framed this conversation already, the things that parents often do and don't do to their children. Landa, before I give way to Karabo again, just describe to the listeners a little bit what some of the things are that you experience, because people may be wondering, surely it couldn't have been as bad as you guys are saying. Okay, so... Basically, off the bat, it was it was a case of um, having to assume domestic duties um, without being really prepared for that. But that's fine, right? Secondly, when with, within three months into the new home, I decide I cannot cope, I cannot breathe. I decide to try and run away. I am recaptured by the mother. She takes me back home. The father arrives from work. He, he beats me and kicks me until I shit my pants. So at 11 years old, I'm ready to die. Um, there are days where my brother and I will cook and as we're about to dish up, the mother walks into the kitchen to say, do not dish up for yourselves. So at times we go to bed hungry. Uh, I mean, there were days where even at, in sport, I would get cursed at the fact that I'm prioritizing this athletics when I should be going to the church. Um, my mother would call me a whore. I'm, I'm going to die of AIDS. Um, you know, th there were a lot of things. And um, it's things that I, I kind of like learned to absorb because I didn't, 
I couldn't talk to anyone about it. And there was nothing I could do but subscribe and conform to what was expected uh, of me in that space. Now, speaking about your family, Landa, I mean, you, you, you're probably, I'd say, third generation professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had, you know, it was your grandparents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the mother was a psychiatric nurse. The father mm-hmm. was a paramedic. And your grandparents were, were decent people. Yeah, they and were amazing. So, so you know, what, baff, what baffles me is where did the mother get this, this, this rage and this anger and this bitterness and directed towards the two of you and not the other kids? I mean, have you, you, you know... Have have you thought about that? Have you tried to come to some kind of, you know, maybe figuring it out or understanding? Or are you in a place where, you know, you've sort of given up and you're just like, I have to accept it and just kind of live with this pain of the past? You know, um, Karab, it, it's, 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 I've gotten to a point where, you know what, I've, I've accepted that I will never get uh, a response or a justification on that one. Um, I've tried, even at UCT, my friend Tandy Glass and I, I mean, when my younger siblings are flying the world and I don't have money for food, she, she can identify that and feed me and we'd sit down and try and unpack what happened to your mother, what happened. Something must have happened. I had this conversation with my grandparents in, in Umtata when I go back to Engambelana to start my healing. Nobody can explain. Um, nobody can give me a reason why out of the six kids that she carried, she only has these two that she violently removes, number one, from Mtata, and number two, treats in such inhumane ways within the space. But we must present this perfect church-going family in company so that we can keep up with the souls and souls and souls and souls. So I think I've gotten to a place where I just have to accept and make peace with the fact that I will never know. She literally took it to the grave. Um, your, yeah. your dad, by contrast, was also strange Extremely. because he can go from literally beating up your brother to the point where his jaw line was smashed, can do the same to you, bash your head, deprive you, mm. and at the same time, try to be your ally against mom, such as when mom doesn't want you to wear what you want to wear to the matric dance, and they can also tell mom to take some of the money she got after an accident from the road accident Mm. fund to help pay for some of your initial payment at UCT. So then he plays good cop. Mm. And then in the middle of the journey to UCT, he can stop, take out an object and literally be again on the brink of beating you to a pulp. And, And that must have been confusing for you as a child as well. In a weird way, the predictability of mom is almost more useful because you can plot when you know what you expect. Exactly. So with her, I knew exactly where I stood. With the father, you never knew. And the thing is, in company, he could be the most loving father out there. You know, even sometimes dropping us off at school, he would want to kiss us goodbye. And I'm assuming and thinking that it's because the world is watching. Yes, but he could switch just like that. Yeah. He could. Yeah. I mean, when he beat me, I will yeah. never forget. I can still feel it even talking about it now. As an 11-year-old child, to be beaten to the point where your bodily fluids just run and you still need to get up and at, after some time go and apologize to this person because you were trying to run away from the space, it, it tells you that, yay, there was there was... There was a lot of uncertainty around the father. And I mean, even in terms of athletics, he will take me to to the Oval. And then as he's dropping me off, he will say, I don't know what is wrong with your mother. Yada, yada, fish base. But I mean, you were there when she was saying this, right? Mm. So I preferred the predictability of the mother vis-a-vis 
the uncertain um, sort of veiled love yes. that the father portrayed in company um, yes. and could sort of like dissect or unpack as and when he chose yeah. to. For me, that was more dangerous. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. And it says 22 minutes before noon. Where shall we go to next? Um, um, can I say something quickly? Because I, so I, I want us to get to Pandora. I just want to make <laughs> a, an observation that Landa re- refers to his parents in the Defting article. So it's a kind of emotional and psychological distance, you know. Mm. I, w- I just wanted to sort of m- mention that, that I, you know, I, 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 I totally understand that. And I'm really sorry that you had to go through that in your childhood. Yeah, I wish you were here in the studio because actually as I kept pr- preparing for today, um, I always give Karaba a hug, but in my mind, the first thing I was going to do was to ask you permission to hug you. When oh, you're wow. So maybe if I yeah. bump into you. Hopefully there it in will Woodstock, happen soon. <laughs> yeah, in Cape Town. On page 124, mm-hmm. we have almost Karabo. We almost have the first kiss, but it wasn't to happen. So amidst, amidst um, this battle that Landa has with the family, he almost suppresses this important part of himself, which is the boy inside him that is in a body that doesn't feel like it's the right body for him, comes across Pandora. They find themselves chatting, and the following plays out, and I just want to read a little bit from the book. Um, Pandora continues chatting away as she walks towards her closet and removes her spaghetti strap top, revealing a set of perfectly poised, perky breasts. She then wiggles out of her high-waist jeans and glances in my direction, wearing nothing but a lacy G-string. My hormones race into overdrive. I drop my eyes and focus on the glass of juice in my hands, terrified that I might crush it to pieces from the pressure I am exerting on it. Desire for this magnificent creature (laughs) overwhelms me. And I must say, as a gay male who is a heterosexual virgin, mm. your description here did manage to arouse in me some feelings. So well done. Thank you. Somehow, <laughs> he goes on and he writes, somehow, once again, I managed to mumble, like I said, I've never been with a girl before. Yeah. I cringe as the words come out. She walks closer to me, sits down and removes the glass from my sweaty palms. And then he goes on and on. But here's the key bit, and, 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 and this is why I've chose this, this uh, particular bit. When I feel her hands move towards the mounds on my chest, I suddenly retract from the kiss. I tell her that I'm not ready to move to that world just yet. The reality is that I am ashamed of the female form of my body. I have never been able to even look at my breasts or the thing down there. My body is a contradiction of my soul. Later, you describe how when you felt a lump in your breast, you desperately wished for it to be cancer because then maybe the medical aid scheme will agree that your breasts can go. Please describe to the public, and I'm sorry to ask you this question, mm. I really am, including gay and lesbian men and women who pretend they don't get these things when transgender people speak. Why? You're not a transvestite. Mm. There's a very real yes. sense in which you are distant from the physical body that you have, which is why you didn't want this otherwise beautiful Pandora to even see you in mm. a form that you don't like. And even the shock of the period, yeah, you know? Yeah, speak to us about that. So so I've never, like I say in the book, I've never been, at, at, like I've never been aligned to, to my female form. It, it never, even as a young child, it was never, it was never me, if I can put it like that. It was, it was a suppressed, it was an expression of a suppressed truth. And, um, you know, as 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 a trans person or as a, as a, as a man who's 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 trapped in this woman's body, like I say, I 
was ashamed. And I think a lot of that shame stems from the, the child who had to adapt to shame as a way of life in terms of my growth, in terms of my development. Um, and that, that's the theme that, that, that continued throughout my life. But now when I get to a point where I'm realizing, but hey, you're attracted to people and uh, I still don't know, I still can't quantify what's going on with me, but I do know that there, there, there's, there's some excitement that's being evoked, especially, uh, I mean, by females. I, yeah. I, I just don't understand how, how that's supposed to work. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so, so that, that was the, the dilemma I found myself in, if I can put it like that. I don't and know if I'm answering visceral, your question. Right? No, mm. you are, you are. I mean, you, you, there's one exchange with a medical health professional where the medical health professional doesn't get why you keep lampooning your breasts as tea bags. Mm, mm. Mm. And I mean, I, I just couldn't identify with them. And I mean, the first time I actually looked at my chest was after my top surgery. That's the very first time I looked at myself in the mirror. I just could not handle it. And even going for a mammogram, I'm very excited about that. And, and it's, I mean, it's, it's the same health professional, but I'm very excited to, to having that pressure as painful as it is. But I'm hoping for an outcome that says this, this, this lump is cancerous and then we're going to have to go into, into surgery. Because finally, I can see in my mind that when these, when these bags, these tea bags are removed, then I can start walking tall, if I can put it like that. Mm. And, 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 you know, I, I'm becoming, I'm, I'm emerging, you know. And, and, and that was, that was the, the, the trauma and the, and the struggle. It was a daily thing. Mm. Um, and you can't, I mean, it, it causes a lot of dysphoria. Sometimes you just don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to talk to anyone. It, it really is a very draining and psychological battle from one day sure. to the next. Because, you know, it, it made me think about the issue of body dysmorphia, which mm. is something that uh, people across the spectrum can experience, you know, mm. from its head, like the, the, uh, completely across the spectrum and the impact that that has on your mental health. Yeah. You know, uh, could you, w were you, were you able to track how your mental health was improving as you were going through, uh, you know, along your journey of transition? Mm. Yes, definitely. From, from when I, it, it, it started to, to the glimmer came when I start when I actually found the organization Triangle, set up an appointment, went to speak to the sexologist Ron, and then he refers me to the to the panel at the transgender clinic. Suddenly I'm in a space in a safe space. And secondly, I'm in a space where these people actually know exactly what they're talking about. And and thirdly, um when I start my first um hormone shot in November two thousand and nine, though in all reality it probably did nothing because it was a very first shot, but I suddenly feel a tinge of happiness, you know, and, and suddenly my, my, my thinking and my outlook is shifting towards you know what, Landa, this Landa that's been sort of buried within you is now coming alive. Suddenly I'm happier. Suddenly I can look at people in the eye when I'm talking to them. I don't have to avoid them because I've embraced this, the, this journey that, yeah, it's going to take a bit of time, but there's a start. It's, it's started. It's begun. And so suddenly I find that, you know, in as much as some people still expect me to explain and, you know, don't understand, it doesn't matter in the bigger scheme of things because in the bigger world, Landa is emerging and he's starting to live his truth. If you just joined us, you are listening to The Literature Corner on the Eusebius Makaiser Show. Karaba Holeng and I are in conversation with Landa Mabenge, who was assigned the name Yolanda, dropped the yo mm. bit um, as he transitioned. And this is a beautiful, painful memoir. 
I promise you, it's not just a memoir about the experiences of a trans person. This is all too familiar to many of us, including people who grow up under conditions not of deprivation, but still have parents that can inflict the most horrific abuse on their children. It is entitled Becoming Him, and um, I really hope that it's going to sell like hotcakes, even though you will need a box of tissues while reading it. The Literature Corner. Yeah, My name is Garabo Khuleng. <laughs> I'm with Eusebius Makaiza on his show. No, I'm just a visitor here. Karabo <laughs> um, can do the show for five hours. We're having, I was just chuckling there. I was going to tell the, the listeners how you and I were having mathematical conversations. Labels are something else. No? Labels are on another level. And, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, Landa, your, your relationship mm. as you were transitioning with Queenie and, uh, mm. you, know, wh- wh- you know, where was that? Was, was, she, was she considering herself as, as, as a lesbian because... You you were assigned the gender, you know, it, it, female, or was she with a man who's who you know who just had to make yeah. some changes on his body and yeah. how he presents And similarly, to the world. from your side, right? And mm. and, and I, I'm going to take liberties here because I think you're being very kind with our naive <laughs> questions. That's fine. Were you were you in that relationship with Queenie? Not that the labels matter, but out of curiosity, were you seeing yourself as a butch lesbian? Which initially I think is how you tried to. Mm. negotiate the UCT space or were you clear that maybe you are, I don't know, either bisexual man or heterosexual man and your form is completely irrelevant? So, um, so I stopped referring to myself as a butch lesbian when I, when I found this literature and could actually understand what was going on. So this is about 2007 and when I start ripping in my friend Tandy to refer to me in he, him pronouns. So with the relationship with the Queenie, um, we were very open in, in, from the, from the bat, off the bat. And, um, so she she regarded me and she saw and received me as her boyfriend. Uh, she regarded me, she saw, she received me, or she says, as a heterosexual man who was just in a body that just needed to be aligned to his core gender identity. Right, right. And then what about the spiritual aspect of uh, you know your, your your journey while you were transitioning and the kinds of traumas that you went through, particularly you know that that whole sort of sangoma space, so having come from sort of a Christian <laughs> background, <laughs> because you know th- there's there's also that and, and and I mean that was that was intense. You saw flames there. Yeah, no, definitely I did. Mm. And I mean I remember even writing this book, Mel and I were like, pause, break, what's happening here, you know? And uh, I was like, no, we need to tell the story in its in its entirety. If I'm going to tell my story, let me tell the story. And obviously, that is my interpretation and and understanding and experience in terms of what happened in that space. Ukwini, personally, I don't think she she she's um she had ill intentions in terms of that particular part of the journey. I think it's a it's 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 a situation whereby you get caught up uh, caught unawares in spaces that you're not supposed to be in, and uh, you find yourself allowing yourself to be dictated to because you've chosen to be in those spaces. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm saying from this perspective that she met colleagues who were undergoing the calling and she was kind of like, she also got into the calling having become close to these specific colleagues. So, yeah, now personally, I don't think she had that intention going into that space, but it turned ugly very quickly. And I think it's that lack of listening to your gut because my whispers were telling me something is not right here. And on top of that, I'm not even chatting to anyone at home. I'm not telling my uncle JS, I'm not telling my brother that this is actually what's going on. Now I'm finding myself in a position where 
I am Queenie's, um, you know, main man in terms of this entire journey, which I know nothing about. Nothing, nothing. Okay. Karabo's got a beautiful question she wants to ask you just before we run out of time. Yeah. Um, in relation to patriarchy and male privilege. <laughs> yes. And while she formulates that question, not that she needs time, there is a little bit of humor in the book, beautiful uh, humor when as part of the second, I think the second time you went in for a medical procedure yes. as you were transitioning, <laughs> something happens. And I just want to read here about the joy of being recognized for being a man as you are about to stroll into UCT private academic hospital mm-hmm. and the fault for a gynecological procedure, procedure. that, um, yeah, the woman or the person at the front desk is just very confused <laughs> and says to you, um, I'm sorry, Mr. Mabenge, but it is impossible that you year for a laparoscopic hysterectomy. I clench my teeth, crying not to laugh. My dear, I am here for that procedure. <laughs> I am booked under Dr. Femi Olarohun. Yes, I see that, Mr. Mabenga, but a man can't have a hysterectomy. It's biologically impossible. I'll have to call the sustained charge of the male ward to check with her. I get impish enjoyment at her confusion as she makes the call. Mr. Mabenga, please speak to the sister. I confidently take the phone. Mr. Mabenga, I believe you're here for a gynecological procedure, sir. I'm afraid it's simply impossible for a man to have a hysterectomy. Are you certain that that is what you are here for? I thought that it was just so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. A bit of light amidst this darkness. Yeah. Yes, and, and that, is, that, that, that is a wonderful story. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that there was some lightness in that. And you handled it very, you know, in a very clever way. You, mm. didn't, you, you didn't sort of jump He to was the... chuffed. <laughs> I was enjoying it. I mean, the res- poor receptionist yeah, and, and, was like losing it. Like, what is going on here? I was enjoying but, it. <laughs> But then, Landa, I want mm. to ask you about, you know, whether you can comment on your awareness of male privilege now that you are presenting in, 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 in a sort of in a male body, sort of phenotypically, if I could put it that way. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, how do you understand it? And are you able to comment on your experience, you know, living in the world as a man, as uh, opposed to when you lived in the world as, as you know, as in a woman's body, not as a woman, but in a woman's body? Mm. Uh, do you feel safer now, for example? Uh, yes, definitely. So, so this thing of male privilege really does exist. Um, I do feel much, much safer. I feel that in, in Spain, in spaces where I would conventionally or naturally not be allowed to be in, I am now allowed to do that. Um, I feel that it's a very sort of favored and, and protected phenomenon, especially amongst us Tosa people. Um, I personally, though, in the, in the same breath, I've, I've always had certain liberties, especially when it comes to my grandparents and my maternal family. They've always, um, allowed me to be, though there was, there would, there would be those limitations. Now I'm able to engage freely. So I do feel that becoming Landa has come with a lot of privilege. Um, by we virtue of the fact in a, that we can even throw you in a prison cell with men. Yeah, and I won't have to conceal now vis-a-vis when I was, Which you is, know. That's what happened. <laughs> but, yeah, but Landa, so I'm, I'm wondering particularly about in public spaces because mm. you know women's experiences in public spaces because you have because you have this body, there's open mm-hmm. season on you. Yeah, you know. Um, do you feel do you feel less of that now because because you're walking you're walking in a man's body in public spaces? So or has there never been a difference for you? Did I you not think? about that there has never been a difference for me personally i've always um 
I've always uh, been very sort of protective in terms of the spaces I move in. Uh, but again, the thing the thing with gender though is it's 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 not necessarily your conventional definition of what a man's body is, what a woman's body is. Certain trans people don't even need or want to align their bodies to their gender identity. Yeah. So you could find a transgender man who decides, you know what? I am not dysphoric about this body. I will stay in this body. So it's not the body that creates or, or, or allows you that 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 mm. that sense of safety. It's how you present yourself to the world and how you present yourself in spaces where you know that you could be compromised if it were to happen that someone uh, were sure. to find out that this is what's going on with this person and then they would choose to violate. So I think that also becomes very important to to just put it out there to say, um, the body is not the definition. The gender is the core. It's a, it's an identity, and uh, with with the privilege, it comes in how you pass. Obviously, I mean, I've got a beard now. I'm balding. You know, uh, my chest is flat. So that automatically puts me in a in a in a privileged position. Let me sure. put it like that. Sure. Yeah. We, we've come full circle, and I still maintain, Karabo, that firstly. For a country that struggles with difference, it is good enough that this is a trance memoir for people to have reason to buy the book and to read it. But there is a sad universality in the book in terms of our relationship with our parents, which for me is probably the more dominant theme. And I thought that for me personally as a reader, the crux of the book and one of its key morals were really summed up on page 142, and I want to know what it was for you in turn. And it is when he writes the following. I cling to a quote of the great American writer Maya Angelou. I've learned that regardless of your relationship with your parents, you'll miss them when they're gone from your life. And then Lunda goes on and comments as follow in the next three sentences that I really think sum up the book for me. The truth is that I'm fooling myself into believing that there's never been a relationship with the parents. They were my torturers and abusers, but somewhere along the line I find myself trying to change that narrative. This is often the case in the world of an adult trapped within a wounded child. Hey. Yeah. 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 An adult trapped in a wounded child. And I think, you know, a lot of us, you and me, Eusebius, for example, you know, we're tending to our wounded children. Mm. <laughs> That's why we yes. see shrinks, yes. you know? Why we love each so, other. Yeah. And it's <laughs> a continuous <laughs> journey, right? You don't yeah. just decide yeah. one and day. And it makes for good writing, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Final thoughts, Karabu. And then, Landa, I just want to commend you on, you know, having having been the first person to get a medical aid because those people are crooks. Oh, you know, definitely. To pay, to pay for something that you have a right to. Very uh, selective. So congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for coming on the show, Landa. I hope that you will sell lots and lots and lots of copies, inspire a lot of people. Well done on your other achievements, including being a Mandela Washington Fellow with the leadership position, the consulting work that you do, and for having written this book. All the best. Thank Landa's you, Cedars. Thank you, Garabo. Thank you Thank guys you, very much. Truly appreciate it.